You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Rachel Pilchloeb, preparedness fellow in the Division of Policy Translation and Leadership Development and a research associate in the Department of Biostatistics. This call was recorded at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Thursday, September 23rd. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining today. Um, as we all are probably aware, we're right in the, the midst of kind of the uh, FDA review of boosters um, and with the EUA yesterday for boosters for those over 65, as well as um, 18 to 64 year olds who are high risk and those who are in high risk occupations. Um, we kind of are right in the thick of it. We know today that there's going to be ongoing meetings as to who qualifies as high risk for uh, a booster, as well as kind of the professional groups that are likely to be included. Um, and the reality is we are in a little bit of a special time, though we've had uncertainty and uh, unknowns throughout the, the phase of the pandemic, but we're really in a phase where we have a lot more questions than answers about what the next phase of the vaccine um, availability and uptake is going to be in the United States. Um, it's really important to remember, or the way I've been thinking about this, is that while it's fantastic that boosters will be available for those who the data supports um, need it most, we're going to be entering in uh, or already have kind of uh, an interesting time where we almost have a super vaxxed kind of sub portion of our population, those who, where we know that there are individuals who have gone and sought boosters uh, even before they were recommended. Um, and we have a other portion of our population that is still hesitant um, and choosing to be unvaccinated. So we've got a real uh, discrepancy here in the United States. Um, and even with these third doses becoming available, um, it's really critical to remember that the bump in immunity that's gonna be associated with a, a third dose for those who take it um, is, is not gonna necessarily be enough to reduce community transmission, especially when we have in, in areas where we have high portions of the unvaccinated. So the efforts still, uh, despite the availability of boosters are going to need to be on getting folks to take kind of the initial set of doses of the vaccine. Um, and, and similarly, we, we should be thinking about what's to come with vaccines for five to 11 and adolescents. Um, and we should logically expect that there may be lower uptake of vaccines for this population, kind of given that COVID-19 has had less of a severe impact in terms of hospitalizations and deaths on these younger groups. And um, to the best of what I can gather, there's currently very limited discussion of mandated vaccination uh, in the under 12 group, given uh, kind of ongoing uncertainty uh, around the data and around large scale trials and whether that would be necessary. So as I kind of led with a, a lot of a lot up in the air at the moment as to um, what's to come in terms of recommendations. And, and I think that makes for an incredibly challenging set of um, kind of communication efforts uh, for, for individuals and, and this really challenging space where people have kind of started to take matters into their own hands and make decisions for what they think is best for them, um, despite what FDA or CDC or ACID recommends. So happy to take questions and do my best to answer um, anything related to kind of these, the vaccine decisions, the rollouts, what we may expect, um, and, and can also try and answer your questions a little bit more broadly, and we'll let you know if it's uh, outside the scope of my expertise. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Bilchlow. All right, uh, first question. Doctor, thank you for doing this, appreciate it. 
Happily. No problem. Le I want to ask first, from a standpoint of, all right, you've, we, we've got the boosters approved for the groups that you've already talked about. But it, I don't, I'm, I'm trying to figure out, does this mean if I had a J&J &J shot, I, I can get the Pfizer booster? Or a Moderna, can I get the Pfizer booster? And we've seen in Europe that they're saying that, in the UK at any rate, that they think getting a booster of a Pfizer shot, if you've had Moderna, is actually proving to be even more effective. Yep, it's a great question. As of yesterday, uh, and the, the data that was released, my understanding is this only applies to individuals who have received the Pfizer vaccine and who have can get a Pfizer booster. So it does not apply yet to those who have received other uh, vaccines. I think that there is, both J&J &J and Moderna have not yet submitted their data for review as to whether or not, you know, what a third dose kind of looks like. And there has not yet been insufficient data reviewed to um, support mixing and matching in the US. I recognize that in the UK and in other places, they have done this already with success. And there is outside evidence to kind of support the, the use of it, or certainly to suggest that it doesn't appear to be harmful. But I think to, at this point in time, CDC is not moving forward with that recommendation, citing lack of evidence to do so. Um, I would imagine that from a practical perspective in some settings, some long-term care facilities, nursing homes, et cetera, where you know, folks received either Pfizer or Moderna and they will be making a booster available to their entire population, we may be hit with a reality where some folks who received other vaccines initially do end up getting a Pfizer booster, but that is hypothetical and not, not supported by anything besides a likely reality of, of what happens when entities attempt to actually deliver the booster to these populations. Oh, at this point, are we going to be talking mass vaccination sites, do you think? Are we going to be talking... Um go to your doctor's office, go to your CVS? How, how is this going to happen? Realistically, we're, I think we are not going to see mass vaccination sites again. We are going to see a reliance on existing providers and existing um, facilities. So for the over 65 or those who are in long-term care facilities, we will likely see providers that they already work with delivering these shots. We may see another partnership between pharmacies and some of the nursing homes or long-term care facilities like we saw in early phases of the rollout, especially in the, in the Massachusetts area. You know, all states did it a little bit differently. But given the uh, supply of vaccines has made its way to our local pharmacies as in addition to uh, doctor's offices, uh, and that doctors now with um, full approval, especially with the Pfizer vaccine, um, have kind of vaccine supply available at their disposal, especially to now to give, uh, given the EUA approval of the third dose, we will likely just rely on the existing established supply chain to deliver these doses. There continues to be, finally, there this debate over whether this is actually the right course or whether we should be focusing on those unvaccinated people that you mentioned, countries that are underserved at this point and haven't got enough vaccine. What do you think about it? that debate is still going on, isn't it? Yes, I think that debate is going to be ongoing for a very long time. I think we absolutely, you know, if there's anything we've learned over the last 18, 20, it's hard to even count the months at this point, we're going to start saying two years pretty soon. Um, it's that this is a global problem. Uh, we know that there are nations that have, you know, fewer than five, 10% of their population vaccinated. Um, you know, there was 
yesterday, Biden committed that um, by fall 2022, we would push to have 70% of the, the world vaccinated against the virus. That, uh, you know, and many have called, cited that that's too slow um, and uh, still associated with kind of some vaccine hoarding by the US, given that on a global level, the supply chain should support the availability of enough vaccine to have that done by the spring. Um, so this is absolutely still a global problem. We need to get more vaccine to more countries and more people as soon as possible, because if there's anything we've seen about the variants, you know, they can come from all different places. And, you know, we don't know when there's going to be a, a variant that can change kind of our estimates of what the, the pandemic is going to look like in the United States and globally. Um, so I think that that debate will will um, continue to rage. I think we absolutely should be doing more to get vaccine to other other countries. And the reality is that we should be focusing on getting uh, an initial dose, an initial set of doses um, to more people. That being said, um, I think that it is unlikely to change the course of action in the U.S. comparing kind of the global need with the, the domestic uh, policy priorities of the administration. I think it's unlikely to sway the decision-making around boosters, meaning I think it's unlikely that the global need is going to sway the decision around boosters. We've already seen that it that doesn't appear to be the case. However, the US certainly has enough supply as do that they could be sharing more. Um, and we, we don't want our vaccines to be going to waste. So we need to be thinking about how do we expand kind of the reach of the supplies we already have. Thank you, doctor. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, next question. Hey, thank you both for doing this. Um, sort of a biostats question is the ACIP seemed really interested in the differences that we're seeing between the Israeli data on boosters and U.S. data on boosters that shows, you know, immunity is pretty durable. Um, so just thinking about the differences between how immunity was studied there and here, are there, how are you thinking about the differences that we're seeing there? It's a good question. And I think it continues to be kind of a, a logical question, right? Why did we see such different results perhaps from Israel as we did um, in kind of the more recent studies say of healthcare workers in the US? Um, I think first it's important to point out that, you know, one of the things that really struck me during the meeting yesterday um, was that, the Israeli definition of a severe infection, right, where they're taking a look at whether or not, um, you know, the vaccines continue to provide immunity is different than the U.S. different definition of severe infection. So in the U.S., we have looked at hospitalizations and deaths. From what I heard yesterday and saw, the uh, Israeli definition is what we would probably call a moderate infection here, meaning they had two or more symptoms and they visited a healthcare provider. Um, and so I think that when we're looking at numbers of what severe infection looks like between the US and, and Israeli data, we're not comparing like to like. And I think that that's the bigger message um, that I take away from looking at the US study to the Israeli study and to any studies that we have to look at in, in many of these preprint papers that come out is, are we comparing apples to apples or not? And I think that the biggest takeaway is that we're not comparing apples to apples in the US data and the Israeli data that could expand to kind of the inclusion criteria of who was in the study, uh, the, the sample selection of the reality is that Israel got the vac, for example, that, that Israel got the vaccine to um, far more 
a far greater portion of their population initially earlier on. And the reality is eventually if um, more of the population kind of is vaccinated, we're going to start to see, you know, from a percentage basis, we're going to see more infections and, uh, you know, some symptoms coming up um, just from a likelihood perspective in the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated. So again, our samples end up being a little bit different our definitions of, of a case end up being a little bit different. And so I think that then when we compare just a percentage, we're left with a kind of confusing statistic. Um, and so I think that, you know, we, the best that we can do is, and of course we don't, you know, want to wait, we, we make decisions based on the best evidence of the time. But I think that the reality is the reason that the Israeli data is not necessarily compelling um, the FDA um, or ASIP more is because the way in which they have looked at the data and defined things is a bit differently than how we have done it here when we are making decisions about whether or not the vaccines are effective at preventing hospitalization and death. Thank you. Um, and my second question is, you know, Pfizer submitted data based on a median of six months and Biden announced a vaccination campaign of eight months um, after your primary series. Uh, do you think from a logistical communications standpoint that that is challenging? To be honest with you, I'm not, I think that there's a lot of challenges, but I'm not sure that that six months versus eight months is particularly the one that I would, harp on i think that the the time frame of of six versus eight months i don't want to say is is arbitrary but you know pfizer opted to look at that as kind of the follow-up period of time well the eight months you know it's still unclear like why that is particularly meaningful i think folks the reality is that once boosters start um we are folks will proceed to attempt to get them, even it, whether it was six months, seven months, eight months, I think from their initial approval period. So I think that the recommended time frame is vague, but I think that the administration moving forwards announcing that they were going to make boosters available prior to FDA, CDC, ACIP recommendations was a, kind of a, a more challenging communications issue than, than the exact months they picked. So I think that overall, the critique of the release of the recommendation or the suggestion that boosters would be available had a lot of communications challenges wrapped up into it that are not necessarily about the the months if that's a, a fair response to your question yeah definitely could you just elaborate what you think the main communication challenges coming out of that sort of premature yeah i think i think that the reality is that you know a policy was announced that boosters were going to be available um, you know, you could pick any policy announcement, but it has nothing to do with COVID, you know, universal pre-K is going to be available. Um, and then people say, okay, what and when and for whom and, and how, and are we talking about tomorrow? Are we talking about in two months? So first uh, policy was announced without supporting evidence to suggest why. So you had a scientific community that was a little bit confused. Second, there was no, um, so one challenge is lack of supporting evidence. Two is lack of detail to follow it up. And we're talking about when the administration initially announced this policy, right? When what what's the process going to be? Who's it going to be for? Uh, you know, going back to um, the, the question that was just asked before by Brian, you know, how is it going to be rolled out? So there was no supporting details, lack of evidence, lack of supporting details. 
Uh, and, and lack of, I would, you know, one of the kind of critical aspects of risk communication is, is to make it a two-way street, right? To be available to, to take questions and understand kind of what the challenges were. And it seemed like there were more questions and answers that arose from the strategy. Um, I think we are starting to get some of those details, but it's still up to the administration to decide whether or not they're going to follow the recommendations um, that have been put forth in terms of who gets it, how, and when. Yeah, as I recall, there was no like press call or anything after there's no oh, exactly. <laughs> so I think that, you know, um, the reality is that, you know, I'm sure everything, you know, we're all everyone's making the, the best decisions they can uh, with the evidence they have at the time. But I think the reality is for such a, a large policy recommendation or change to be um, announced without that supporting detail, I think leads to more questions and answers and likely um, also drove some people to just say, okay, I'm going to go get a booster, which perhaps may not have done them harm, but it also, I think, contributes to this everyone's their own doctor scientist at the moment uh, type of environment that we're in. Right. That's it for me. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, next question. Hey, thanks so much for taking my question. Um, how concerned should people be who are at the six months, who, are, who have hit that point of their six months out from finishing their first round of vaccination of, of any of the vaccines? Um, we, you were just talking about you know, there might be this rush to the clinic moment, but immunologically, is there a reason to give it more time to let, let your B and T cells mature? So it's a great question. While I'm not a, an immunologist, I can speak to my best understanding of the data is that there is no magic cutoff whereby we see that today things look one way and tomorrow they look some more different. You know, for, for um, those who have kind of uh, reviewed a variety of scientific studies, oftentimes we bucket people or timeframes into groups and that's how we kind of come up with some of these cutoffs as to what is considered either high risk or where there's gonna be a different recommendation. It's kind of like how women over 35 are treated as a high risk pregnancy, but at 34 and 364 days, they're not, right? There's, there tends to at times be what I would call a little bit of an arbitrary distinction between uh, around time or age or characterizing someone as overweight or obese, BMI, for example. So um, I think that the six month time frame from an immunological perspective has come as, as a result of that's what the follow on periods were for monitoring. Uh, and that's when some of the, the studies kind of uh, were, were conducted and, and took a look at um, the, the time frame for when uh, immunity may start waning. I think that the reality is also when we think about kind of studies that have pointed to immunity waning, they also coincided and, and looked at the six month time frame. They also coincided with the rise of the Delta variant, which we also knew was more transmissible uh, for folks who were both vaccinated and unvaccinated. So from an immunologic perspective, um, one, sometimes the six month date as a drop dead date, I think is slightly arbitrary. Um, two, studies that kind of looked six months out from second dose when folks had it um, were also kind of, uh, being conducted at the time when Delta was on the rise. So, um, you know, tying the uh, a study result to say that it's the vaccine um, effectiveness waning um, 
especially if we were looking at effectiveness in, in um, preventing infection, which was of course not one of the initial in intentions of the vaccine, but was something that was, was initially kind of hoped for. Um, it's really hard to disentangle that from the vaccine needing to protect individuals from the transmission or infection of a more um, transmissible variant, meaning Delta. Um, and so I think that for uh, individuals who are saying, okay, I'm six months past my shot, am I now less protected? My, my you know, if I was in that conversation, my initial reaction would be no. Meaning you, it, it, whether it's six months, seven months, eight months, it, you at the individual level may still have excellent protection, especially against severe infection and death. We've seen that the vaccines, the two-dose vaccines are still incredibly effective at preventing that severe infection and death more than six months past um, for, for many individuals. And it's for older individuals, those who are more immunocompromised, where perhaps we are seeing that uh, uh, reduction in vaccine effectiveness as, as time continues to go on. And to answer your second question as to whether or not um, it would be more difficult, you know, uh, make more sense to let kind of our innate immune system, our B cells and our T cells kind of mature more, it's a little bit beyond my scope. So I, I, I don't wanna um, misstate anything about our specific immune response or the underlying uh, immune response, but I hopefully was able to answer some of your question. Thanks so much. Uh, next question. Uh, yes. Hi. Uh, thank you. Um, I joined this call a little late, so I apologize if this ground has already been covered. But um, I was wondering uh, from the the, the um, five to eleven year olds, um, you know, it looks like most likely uh, uh, being eligible for the shots um, sometime in by Halloween, roughly. Um, what does that mean for the overall uh, pandemic? Does is that enough? Uh, more people getting vaccinated that it will really help with to bring numbers down or how do you see that in the wider picture of the pandemic? Yeah, so I think that I, will, I certainly don't have enough uh, hubris to try and pre predict uh, too much about the future of the pandemic, but I think that, um, you know, a variety of, of modelers have suggested more recently that we are likely to see declining cases um, I think through through March 2022, kind of with the extent of where their models are going, projecting out around six months at this point in time, with the assumption that there will be increasing vaccine uptake um, in the under 12 group, um, as well as kind of a waning from the, the peaks of Delta. And this can vary certainly state to state. Um, so we definitely think it will help in terms of a reduction in transmission. But it is important to remember that, you know, um, we still have a large portion of our adult population that is unvaccinated, uh, and and what would be an even an even more substantial help, or I shouldn't say an, a greater help, but what would be a significant help was if adults also were unvaccinated or remain unvaccinated um, were to get get the shot. I think it's also really critical that we don't necessarily rely on the under twelve group to kind of bring you know get vaccinated, reduce kind of those levels of infection. Um, and to kind of bring us out of the pandemic, it's important to remember that throughout the, the pandemic so far, the youngest age group seems to be um, sort of uh, less hospitable hosts. They seem, to, though they certainly can transmit it, they seem less, uh, less able to do so. Um, 
And so, you know, relying or thinking that this group is going to necessarily turn the tide, meaning that their vaccine vaccination status uh, would would shift things dramatically one way or another, I think would be insufficient in and of itself. Okay, and then I, I, I guess kind of um, piggybacking on, on what you were saying about the adult population, um, as you know, like there's by region, there's quite a big discrepancy in the percentage of adults who are vaccinated, um, you know, in Maine and New England, you know, the pretty high levels. And then, you know, in other, uh, other parts of the country, notably the South, some parts of the West, um, pretty low levels of adult vaccination. So do you think that these models that we're, that we're talking about, that we could still see like uh, some pretty big regional differences in what the pandemic looks like, you know, a few months from now? Yeah, I think that we're, you know, um, they're absolutely hypothesizing that the pandemic is going to look different in different states. Um, I think that, you know, there's also weather related factors that can, that can come up, but um, the pandemic has also waxed and waned a little bit on a two month cyclicality that for reasons that we don't fully understand uh, in terms of kind of what happens with viral transmission and flow. So we do expect that there's going to be significant differences regionally. There continue, there have been significant differences regionally throughout the pandemic. That's absolutely related to vaccination status. Um, we know that there are parts of the country where crisis standards of care need to be uh, enacted where healthcare facilities are overwhelmed, people are being rerouted to hospitals hundreds of miles away, um, and those are those are overwhelmingly in states where the uh, the vaccination rate is you know below average. Um, so, but I think that it is incredibly unlikely that if we have low vaccine uptake in an adult population, we would have high vaccine uptake in a minor population. Adults are you know parents are less likely in general. Uh, some studies have suggested that parents in general are less likely to be vaccinated than than non-parents or adults without minor children in the home. Um, and uh, if they are more hesitant for themselves, they're absolutely more hesitant for their children, especially given that the evidence we have about kind of the effects of COVID-19 on a, the adult population in comparison to what's gone on with younger adult populations. If I could squeeze one more question in. Do you think there is a, a, a seasonality to the virus, considering that the North is going to be coming upon our, our indoor season? Um, so I, I hesitate to call it a seasonality. There does seem to be some level of cyclicality in the, the ups and downs of the case rates, um, but they are, it's not necessarily tied, for, so far at least, to a, a given season. I think what we are going to see, though, as the North kind of head Northeast or North heads into the, the winter months is an increase in respiratory infections overall, um, especially now that uh, mask wearing is less required, though I, I know some states have it more than others um, in, in indoor spaces. Um, and so I think that we are likely to see an increase in kind of the burden of respiratory infections on the healthcare system, whether that be RSV, flu, COVID-19, um, or kind of pick your, pick your respiratory infection poison. Uh, and, that kind of combined effect on the healthcare system and just on how people feel on um, and potentially in, in kind of the severity of their infections is, is likely to be a burden this winter. Thank you. Thank you.
next question. Great, thank you so much. And um, my apologies, I also signed in a little late. So if you've already touched on this, uh, I apologize for asking you to repeat yourself, but I, I was just you know, we're expecting this uh, announcement from the CDC advisory uh, committee today on, on who gets the booster. And I just wanted to ask, I guess, number one, what you expect to see in that and, and also what, you, what you'd like to see. Sure, so you know, I think, I would be surprised if CDC doesn't follow kind of what um, came out of, of the FDA and, and the EUA yesterday, meaning that we expect boosters to move forward for the 65 and older population, for those who are high risk between 18 and 64, and for those who work in high risk occupations. I hope to see some specificity around what we mean by high risk occupations and um, uh, higher risk um, kind of uh, immune compromised groups, meaning, and I think especially on kind of the workforce front, um, there's been talk that of course we're talking about healthcare workers or those who are more likely to be exposed as part of their profession with the notion that kind of a booster will, is likely to um, re reduce um, kind of the severity of infection should they, should they be infected so that they can get back to work more quickly, that they kind of experience less burnout. Um, but it, you know, it's a question if that's gonna apply more broadly to, to grocery store workers, other frontline essential workers, transit workers, for example, um, to, to K through 12 teachers or preschool teachers or kind of that broad bucket. But the question is, is it's gonna apply to that broad bucket that was in kind of the, um, groups 1A, B, and C when the vaccines were first rolled out? Is it going to be more limited? Because if, if it, it does apply to that broad bucket, we're talking about an inc incredibly large portion of the, the um, domestic workforce here. Um, and that's kind of, uh, that's different from making it kind of recommended for those who, different meaning just in terms of sheer population, than those who are just say, uh, only healthcare or emergency service workers. Um, so I think I'm hoping that there will be some clarity and guidance around around those two issues in particular. And and should it apply to those workers, to the uh, people working in grocery stores and the nurses and the teachers? Uh, would you like to see that uh, extended to those? I mean, like to is uh, vague. Um, I think that those. It's a. I think it goes to a question of why is it being recommended for the for the those workforce groups. If it's to you know, thus far, there really haven't been studies to the to the best of my knowledge. If anyone on this call knows, I would love to see it. But to um, to demonstrate that folks in any of those what have been deemed essential workers, um, grocery store workers, transit workers, etc., um, had higher rates of um, so infection, hospitalization, death, than those who are in kind of other professions. That being said, you know, uh, which I think would be the, the logic for, you know, giving the booster to those groups and healthcare workers. Um, that being said, if folks who are working in those professions perceive that the booster is going to help protect them so that they can continue to go to work and it will add to that level of kind of, um, comfort and security and continuing to go to work where they have to interact with folks who may not be vaccinated, uh, who don't want to wear masks, et cetera, then you know, their ability to get a booster, then they should be able to get a booster. Uh, from a 
if you're asking me, does the data support them being included? I'm not sure what data supports it at this time, because I don't think we've had um, significant kind of population level studies of these groups. There have been kind of smaller sub studies. Um, but I think that th those are two different questions, meaning do we have the data to support them being included versus should they be able to get one uh, for their kind of comfort and security as they pursue their professional obligations. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, next question. Hi, uh, my question is now that the FDA has approved a vaccine for certain groups, does that place a burden on doctors, pharmacists, anyone who's giving the shot to prove that someone's over 65 or that they have some sort of uh, high risk element that you know makes them eligible? I mean, it sort of seems like it's not approved for everyone. So how, how do doctors sort of navigate that, whether or not someone really is eligible or not? Yeah, so it's a good question. And I think that it's a little bit of an honor system. So if we go back to how the vaccine was being rolled out initially, um, and there were certain priority groups that were supposed to get it first, uh, depending on where you were located, um, you know, all, there was a, you needed to certify that you fit and you didn't really need to prove anything otherwise. Um, and so I think that it is likely to be kind of a similar system now. Pharmacists, doctors, et cetera, will ask, you know, do you work in a high exposure profession? Are you, do you, are you high risk because of X, Y, and Z underlying condition? Um, you know, over 65 is probably the easiest to prove by just showing a form of ID, but in some locations, you're not even asked to show ID because of, um, you know, immigration status or various other reasons that folks weren't asked. Um, and so I think it is likely to be an honor system. And I think that it is very unlikely that there will be, um, punishments, ramifications in terms of licensure or something else if doses are administered beyond kind of the approved usage. Great, thank you. Thanks. While waiting for anybody else to raise their hand, uh, I have a question in Greece. Um, she said that Greek schools opened recently and already one out of four COVID-19 patients are children. Many scientists predict a new pandemic wave as winter is approaching. In the US, you have already felt the impact. How can a new wave be prevented? Yes, I mean, so I haven't looked at the Greek data, but from what I understand about the, the question, one in four patients that are hospitalized have been children. Um, and I think that, you know, that's you know certainly scary and something we want to keep in mind. But I, I guess the, the question is, that it becomes a broader picture question, meaning, you know, are, when we say one in four of those who are hospitalized, have our overall hospitalization numbers gone down? Um, and now, you know, the groups that are left who are kind of dealing with the experience are sort of a, a smaller, rarer number of people who have been kind of been infected. Um, so I, I think the question is, um, you know, there are various, a pretty broad question, but there, there are various strategies that are being tried in various parts of the US around what to do around kids. Um, the notion that if there's been exposure in schools, there's kind of the concept of test to stay, meaning you know individuals who may have been exposed, as long as they continue to test negative for a seven day period, they can continue to participate in school. So one concept is relying a lot on rapid antigen testing, should, should it be available kind of in the area where folks kind of can, um, kind of provide proof of a negative test to continue to participate in school and other aspects of society. Um, I'm again, unsure about the vaccination rates in Greece and I apologize, but you know, of course, for just being less familiar, but of course, 
you know, uh, continuing to make vaccination the, uh, the norm. So people have to opt out to be vaccinated. It's an ex similar to Italy's kind of green pass. You either need to show proof of vaccination or proof of a negative test within the last 48 hours in order to participate in indoor um, activities or for various other um, kind of aspects of daily life. So relying on kind of a multi-pronged strategy that includes um, rapid antigen, antigen testing, of course, vaccination, mask wearing, uh, et cetera, would be kind of the, the general the general recommendation. I think if we've seen anything over the course of dealing with the Delta variant, it's that relying on just one thing alone, such as vaccination, for example, is not enough, especially given, at least in parts of this country, the rates of vaccination. Um, relying on vaccination is not enough to prevent kind of an in another wave of the pandemic. Thank you. Uh, she had another question. Do you worry about new, more dangerous mutations of the virus? I think we all, you know, we should absolutely, absolutely be monitoring additional um, virus variants. I think that we are, there's efforts to do that globally, but there, you know, it's still relatively limited. And I think that what we want to do is get as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible to limit kind of the opportunity for variants and, and can, uh, additional mutations uh, of the virus kind of going unchecked in unvaccinated populations. Um, so I think it is always kind of a lingering concern, but, but so far, at least, we have not encountered a variant that the vaccines uh, do not work against. And her last question is, how can we persu persuade people to get vaccinated? Oh, that is a wonderful question. Um, and I'm sure we would all love to answer that. I, and I think that my answer is, <clears throat> it depends, like any good researcher would say. Um, but, but what it depends on is kind of what are their underlying concerns or reasons for not getting vaccinated. Um, so, uh, you know, I think step one is understand what the issues are, understand the, the, the reasons that people are, are hesitant. Uh, I think, depending on what those responses are, proceed with a targeted kind of communication strategy and be prepared to have individual, at times really lengthy conversations about, um, about the reasons for vaccination. I think include um, comments and strategy that makes people aware that there's a lot of misinformation out there about vaccines and individuals are gonna go and pursue their own online searches. They're gonna talk to their family, their friends, their whomever, but. I think one of the things we often just don't say or, or talk about is that, you know, be aware that there's misinformation. I can't tell you what all of it's going to be, but just, you know, uh, be, be cognizant of that. And, um, and, and if you have questions, you know, try, try and find some trusted messengers. Um, uh, I, and maybe that's your position. Maybe that's uh, a risk communicator at the government level. Um, um, it's going to vary a lot, but be aware of misinformation, um, be willing to have kind of hard conversations. And then of course, uh, you know, there's the carrot and the stick approach, meaning, you know, incentivize people to be vaccinated, uh, be willing to have those conversations and at various points, you know, uh, require vaccination for various activities where it's too risky to not have to have unvaccinated groups together. Uh, and in the US, we, there's been various vaccine uh, requirements for entry into given activities, and it varies by locality. 
Um, but uh, it has been, and certainly employers have started to require it. And there has been a, a shift, at least in some portions of the population, um, because getting vaccinated has become the path of least resistance. So to summarize, understand the issues, be willing to kind of have a, a detailed communication strategy that recognizes misinformation and is prepared to have ongoing conversations with populations or population groups that are hesitant uh, and think about how to incorporate vaccine requirements, but don't rely on them alone. Thank you. Uh, next question. Great. Thank you for another shot at it. Um, I, I just wanted to uh, ask a little bit about sort of the um, uh, ethical balance uh, with regards to boosters when uh, there's a lot of concern about global vaccination rates being as low as they are and uh, that we should uh, uh, perhaps not be giving a third shot when so much of the world has not yet had a first. I, you know, as the CDC is, is making its recommendation today, can, can you just sort of weigh in about, about that challenge? Besides to say it's definitely a challenge. Um, no, I, I, I completely agree with you that we, and the US has had originally committed though it pretty in pretty vague terms that they would kind of support and, and they have continued to acknowledge that they will support kind of the donations of million, hundreds of millions of doses of the vaccine, um, of the Pfizer vaccine. That being said, uh, there has been a lot of criticism, critique, whatever from the global community that the US in particular is not doing enough to actually get the, that vaccine out. Um, and I think that, you know, that sent, I echo that sentiment that the US could certainly be doing more to bring the vaccine to, uh, to more people. Um, what, you know, giving vaccine is, is a pretty vague statement. You know, there needs to be support for kind of health systems strengthening and health systems, uh, delivery uh, and rollout to actually bring the vaccine to two individuals, oftentimes who are in not only urban, but incredibly rural communities. Um, and so, yes, the U.S. has an obligation. No, they are not doing enough. Does that change what the CDC is likely to recommend in terms of booster shots? No. Uh, meaning I think that the U.S. will continue to look internally at the data, what the needs of the United States population are. Um, and uh, make a recommendations related to boosters, uh, despite the need to support things more globally. So I think it's definitely a uh, ethical challenge as the US is a citizen kind of of the world. Um, but I do not think yet that that challenge has risen to the level that it is shifting domestic policy related to boosters. I think that the conversations are largely uncoupled for better or worse. And if I could just follow up quickly um, to the, your point, we're, we're talking about Pfizer here. Um, and uh, as a, a Massachusetts-based journalist, uh, you know, very interested in Moderna, a local <laughs> company here. Um, and any thoughts about, you know, the future? Uh, it sounds like we should be hearing about Moderna boosters sometime in the, in the near future. Sorry, you tailed off there a second. Sure, sorry. It, just, it, it sounds like we should be hearing about Moderna boosters in the near future. Any, any just thoughts about about what we might be seeing there and what we should see from Moderna about booster shots? I think that Moderna is likely to submit a package very similar to Pfizer looking for approval for a booster for their vaccine. Um, I think that uh, as someone else asked earlier in the call, I think that the open question is going to be 
uh, whether or not CDC and FDA approve or really CDC recommends that vaccines can be mixed and matched as other countries have done, which would frankly make the delivery of boosters just more uh, practical. Great, thank you. Uh, next question. Hi, thanks for letting me double dip. Um, I just wanted to ask about how you're thinking about whether boosters should be a tool for reducing transmission. Um, and you mentioned that you watched the ACIP meeting yesterday and there was some evidence around nursing homes and boosters not reducing transmission as much as reducing it in the community and making sure staff was vaccinated. Um, so I think Peter Marks said before the verb pack, like consider this evidence um, as it could help transmission and you know curb this pandemic, but um, should we be thinking about boosters that way? I hope that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's a it's a good question and it just reflects the complicated environment of what we're talking about, right? So we have, do boosters uh, affect transmission? Really to translate that, it's also basically, do they prevent infection, right? Um, you know, the evidence of transmission is whether or not somebody else gets infected by the virus. Um, versus do boosters kind of reduce the likelihood of a severe infection or symptomatology? Um, we don't know, obviously, except for sometimes we don't know unless we're doing kind of um, an ongoing kind of surveillance program, whether or not somebody had been infected in the first place until they show symptoms. Um, and I think that from what we've seen with the nursing home data, for example, is that the biggest threat to uh, transmission or the, the, the likelihood of transmission, sorry, the biggest threat to, to presenting with disease is unvaccinated staff continuing to come in um, to, to nursing home settings and transmit the virus to patients there. Um, and I think that the way we should be thinking about vaccines in general, including the boosters, is that these are a tool to prevent severe disease or prevent disease um, and then hospitalization and death. I think that in general, to ask any vaccine to prevent kind of the ability to be infection in and the ability to be infected, excuse me, is unrealistic. Um, and oftentimes really difficult to figure out if we've been successful at that. Meaning, you know, what, what are we actually measuring to determine that somebody was never infected? And it's hard to figure out that counterfactual. Um, so I think that we should, you know, we, think that it is less likely that's, we know that it's less likely that somebody who's vaccinated is infected if we look at kind of the, the, the rates of transmission. But if you continue to circulate um, or have unvaccinated folks and vaccinated folks in a population, vaccinated folks are more likely to pass it on. They've shed virus for longer. They have higher viral loads for more prolonged periods of time. There's data to suggest this. And so the biggest threat to even super vaxxed or people who have gotten a third shot and had gotten that booster in a nursing home are, are the unvaccinated. Um, so I guess to, to summarize or hopefully answer your question, the way I'm thinking about the boosters is really to prevent kind of any symptomatology um, in those who are at high risk for kind of really adverse effects should they become infected with the virus. Um, and we can actually measure that because we can see kind of how the disease presents in the event that somebody even tests positive um, for the virus. Uh, 
we also can simply just see whether or not there's a reduction in the number of people who are, are hospitalized, right, coming from nursing homes, um, if we're not going to be have, have ongoing surveillance uh, of, of these populations. So the way I'm thinking about boosters is, is as a tool to prevent even the most limited infections, rather than as a tool to prevent uh, limited infections being, being symptomatic, rather than as a tool to basically say that the virus will no longer exist in these populations. Gotcha, thank you. All right, it looks like that is our last question. Uh, real quickly, anybody else have anything? Okay, uh, Dr. Pilchalook, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with us before we go? I don't. Thank you all so much for your time today, and please let me know if anything comes up after this. This concludes the September 23rd press conference.